You are beautiful, and your beauty will never fade. It's not even Mother's Day. The law is attractive. The law is attractive. We are attracted by the law. We love its virtues. We love justice and goodness and peace and prosperity. And the law makes us attractive. The law makes us attractive. But its beauty is only skin deep because its comeliness is conditional. And therein lies its ugliness. Not in the law, but in the eye of the beholder who sees in himself a reflection of the law, warts and all. But when the gospel is your makeup, you have a beauty that is eternal. For in the gospel, the beauty of the law is fulfilled. So in Christ, unconditional, you are beautiful and your beauty will never fade. And that is the truth in our text, of our text this morning. And Quite frankly, that's the truth always in our texts because our church holds, holds tightly to Christ and Him crucified. We hold tightly to the sufficiency, supremacy, and necessity of Jesus Christ. So we preach Christ from all the scriptures. And this morning the gospel begins, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Now these really aren't the last words of David. He will speak again. As I have said before in the last few weeks, the ancient authors were not restrained by chronological exactitude. The ancient authors, carried along by the Holy Spirit, were bound by theology. And so the author here arranges these events and these songs and moments in David's life, David's history, to give us truth about God, to give us truth about God from his word. So he took this last speech of David. He took the last speech of David and placed it in chapter 23 to teach us something. Last week, he took one of the last songs of David, and he placed it in chapter 22. And he took that song and placed it in chapter 22 to teach us something about God. And he taught us about the kingdom of God. And he taught us how the kingdom of God has come. He's, he's taught us how God has established his kingdom. So in chapter 22, the author explains by the song how God established his kingdom. Now in chapter 23, he takes this last official word of David, the last official word of David, this oracle, places it in chapter 23 to show us how Yahweh will consummate the kingdom. In chapter 22, we learn that Yahweh established the kingdom by destroying all of David's enemies. He established the kingdom by defending and preserving David. And now in chapter 23, he shows us how Yahweh or, excuse me, consummated the kingdom, that is, finished the kingdom, how he will finish the kingdom by destroying completely and forever all of David's enemies. You see, the kingdom of God has two histories or two phases. Two histories or two phases to the kingdom of God. There's the already not yet. There's the already kingdom, and there's the not yet kingdom. Already the kingdom is established, but not yet. Already. Already Christ rules at the right hand of the Father. Already Christ is head of the church. 
defending and preserving us, his people, from our enemies. And Christ will return to cast all our enemies into everlasting condemnation and take us into heavenly joy and glory. And that's the not yet. There's the already history and phase of the kingdom and the not yet. Now, when evangelicals become reformed, they get confused by our already kingdom theology. That's because evangelicals have been reared on dispensationalism. And in dispensationalism, the kingdom of God is always not yet. It's always in the future. So eschatology, the study of end times, is always pushed to the future. It's always these future things. But it's not. It's not. It's already. Already the Holy Spirit has been at work since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit has been creating and and recreating again new creations. Already the Holy Spirit has been establishing the kingdom of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That every tongue, tribe, and nation might be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Eschatology is already. But it's also not yet. So with uplifted heads, we long for Christ to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. But already... We long for the life of the world to come, and already we have it. We already have the life of the world to come. We already have it because we already have the king's word. The title of my sermon is The Word Works the Kingdom. That's the main idea. The word, the word of God works the kingdom. I have three points for you as well. The word that works the kingdom is a word from heaven. It is a word of power, and it is an everlasting word. The word that works the kingdom is a word from heaven, a word of power, and an everlasting word. Our first point, the word that works the kingdom is a word from heaven. Verse 1, now these are the last words of David. He says, the oracle, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man, the oracle. An oracle is a divine revelation. It's a, a divine declaration. Listen to Numbers 24.16. Numbers 24.16, the prophet speaks. The oracle of him who hears the word of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. So the oracler hears, knows, and has seen God. This is the prophet's way of explaining that the oracler, the oracler, the prophet, has received the word of God from God. And then David explains how, where, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. That's where the oracle came from. The oracle came from on high. And then he explains how, the anointed of the God of Jacob. How he received the oracle was by consecration, by the power of the Holy Spirit from on high. David was lifted above human limitations by the Holy Spirit to hear the word of the Lord, Eschatology happened to David. Eschatology happened to David. He was lifted above human limitations. He was taken by the kingdom of God. 
And already the Holy Spirit gathered David to hear his word. Already God's power was breaking into this fallen world. Already the kingdom was being established. And guess what, dear Christians? Eschatology happened, and eschatology happens today. Eschatology happens. It's happening right now. You see, what David experienced is what we experience every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, our earthly gathering, this earthly gathering, every Lord's Day, takes place on high. Worship takes place in Mount Zion above. And worship is not just a mere symbol of heaven. Our worship isn't just a mere symbol of heaven. We're not just portraying heaven. We're not just portraying heaven, doing the works of the word. We do do the works of the word, but we believe those word, that word works, and that word works us up. We are worked up into heaven, raised and anointed. Worship is consecrated by God. So that we do not doubt, but joyfully believe that we receive in this worship nothing less than heaven above. And we receive it by the eyes of faith. That's how powerful God's word is. God's word is powerful. It makes our earthly worship an extension of the heavenly reality. The word of God bridges heaven and earth. And we pass through by the word, by the spirit, we have passed through this age into the age to come. In worship, we are not now on earth. You get that, children? Children, we are not now on earth. We are in heaven. And you have to see it with your spiritual eyes. We are not now on earth. It's the Lord's day, the parousia of God, who by his spirit lifts us up to heaven by the word, and God has so anointed this worship. Worship is eschatological. We are already participating in the not yet. We're already participating in the not yet. Worship is the break-in of the future consummation, breaking into this age right now. Right now, we are already having fellowship with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today, we will participate in that future reality today. It's the breaking in of heaven on earth. The word that works the kingdom is from heaven. So we are already united to Christ. And so the word that works the kingdom is a word of power. He calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. The psalms that we sing are the words of heaven. They are words from on high and they are words anointed. And so the Psalms have a power to them, a majesty and a beauty and a power to them that no hymn, no praise song can give. They are the songs of Israel, and we are the Israel of God. They are songs written from on high and anointed. And according to the Apostle Paul, when we sing the Word of God, when we sing the Word of God, He says the word of God dwells in you richly. When you sing the word of God, the word dwells in you richly. And he says the result is perfect harmony. I'm not talking about our harmony, although our harmony is getting pretty good, especially from this side. This side needs to work on the harmonies. No, this side, we're good. No, harmony with one another, union. 
Who here wants harmony? We all want better marriages, stronger marriages, better relationships. Want to be a better spouse, better husband, better wife, be a better neighbor, better witness. You want your best life now? The Psalms are the best life now because they are the life to come penetrating into this life now. You have the best life to come now when you sing the Psalms. We sing the Psalms in this church because it's the word of God. We sing the Psalms in this church because we want to practice the one another's. The one another's of scriptures begin with the singing of the Psalms. According to the Apostle Paul, we're united in perfect harmony. And our harmony is pretty good as well. So the Holy Spirit pours out upon us his grace to unite us to himself and one another in the singing of his word. The word works the kingdom. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. This is more heaven on earth. The words of David were the words of the Lord. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So David is speaking as a prophet. He's a prophet king. He was also a priest king. We've learned earlier in 2 Samuel that he was a priest king. He's a prophet king. He's a priest king. And thus he has direct access to God. Verse 3, he says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, Raised and anointed, David spoke to, or excuse me, God spoke to David. God spoke to David to speak through David. That's what an oracle is. God spoke through David to speak through David, or spoke to David to speak through David. And what he has to say is very important for us. I, I, I want to stress how important this oracle is for us, because what we get to hear in this oracle is the official word of the Lord. Or excuse me, we get to hear the official word of a prophet, priest, and king. This is very valuable for liturgical instruction, to actually hear from the mouth of a prophet, priest, king. We want to know what he says. It's important for liturgical instruction because as Reformed Christians, we want to believe all the Bible, and we do believe all the Bible. I think most Christians would agree, right? We want to believe the Bible. But one thing that really sets the Reformed apart from a lot of Christianity is we not only believe the Bible, but we only do the Bible. So we believe, but we do it. We believe what it teaches, and we only practice the Bible, so we only want to preach like the Bible preaches. And here we have an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity, to see how a prophet, priest, king preaches. And we want our churches to preach like this prophet, priest, and king. So what is the word of the Lord? What's the tongue of the Spirit saying through David? Is it law or gospel? Very important question. Does he lead with the law? Does he preach the law? at this most important official time in God's word, or does he preach the gospel? Let us see, verse 3. He says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, so he preaches rule, he preaches the fear of the Lord, he preaches justice. <clears throat> if the ruler rules justly, what you really see here is a works principle. He says, he's basically saying, if, if one rules justly over men, it's the works principle, do this and live. If one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout 
and from the earth. Here, this righteous king, guided by the fear of the Lord, brings life. The righteous king ruling justly provides richly. Through proper justice, the nation is nourished body and soul in life and in death. Through proper government, God's people are blessed. David's word was the Davidic covenant. The word that he speaks, the last official word of David here, is the Davidic covenant. He proclaimed the work of God's elect king, his elect king who will bless his people. The word works the kingdom as a word of power. It is the power of God unto salvation. The word that works the kingdom is gospel. He preached the gospel. According to our confessions, he preached the gospel because God, that's how God creates faith. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. That's Heidelberg 12. Or one of them. (laughs) Ask Jeffrey. He's the one who's got to have an exam soon. He needs to know the exact numbers. He works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, he says, which God first revealed in paradise. God first preached the gospel in paradise to Adam and Eve. Already in the garden, already in the garden, Christ's perfect justice dawned on Adam and Eve. He dawned in them grace and life. Even before Jesus was born, Christ is the I am who's been working since the very beginning working salvation, working his kingdom, already saving his people from paradise to today. Christ has always been supreme, sufficient, and necessary, and he always will be. David preached the gospel, soli deo gloria. We want to do the same. When I was in seminary, I had a Pentecostal friend attending seminary. I don't know why he was there. He just ended up at a Reformed seminary. He was from San Diego. He actually graduated Reformed. But it was like our first year, you know, he was explaining to me how Pentecostals worshiped, how his Pentecostal church worshiped. And in his Pentecostal church, they had the minister, like normal churches, with a microphone. But then there was a microphone down in the, down in the, chan- uh, off the chancel, in the sanctuary. And the idea of that hot mic in the sanctuary was anytime anyone led by the Lord, during the preaching of the word, somebody would be led by the Lord. The Holy Spirit would lead someone. They would come forward, and they would give a word of the Lord in the hot mic. And the minister always had to stop. He had to stop and be like, oh, we have a word of the Lord. And then someone would say the word of the Lord. And then I asked my friend, who was really growing in Reformed theology, I said, that's very interesting. I have a question for you. And he said, what? I said, is that word usually law or gospel? And his eyes lit up because he could hear my, he heard my critique. He said, it's always law. He said, it's always law. He says, it's usually something like the Lord's telling us we need to go to the soup kitchen or the Lord's leading us to go to the homeless shelter this week or the Lord is telling us we need to vote for so-and-so. And that's because the law is attractive. The law is attractive, rightly so. It's beautiful. We love to serve our neighbors. We want to help. We love to bless. We want to see perfect justice. We want governments to remove vice. We want governments to promote virtue. We want our society blessing, right? We want our society caring for the needy, the homeless, providing shelter, all of these wonderful things. It's beautiful, very attractive, the law. But then when you start looking close at the government, When you start looking really close at society, in our own hearts, something looks off. And it's not the law. The law is attractive. 
but it's the law in the hands of sinners. And it begins to look gross in the government, in society, and in our own hearts. We don't see complete destruction of sin and misery in the law's wake. We don't see justice, peace, provision, hope, joy, and life abundant. We see the opposite. And what are we to do with the law? Stare at it longer, stare at it harder. Try harder, get to work, do more. You're not doing enough, keep going. You're almost there, you got it, you got it. Oh, you failed. Well, better luck next time. Because that's what the law always says, better luck next time. Until there is no next time. And there's judgment. We need a better word, don't we? And that word is gospel. The gospel is always beautiful. The gospel is always attractive. It's a word from heaven. It's a powerful word. And finally, my last point, it's the word that works the kingdom, and it's an everlasting word. Verse 5, he says, For does not my house stand so with God? <coughs> the implication is David's house does stand with the Lord. David claims to be this righteous ruler. He is saying, I am the one who rules justly over men. I am the one ruling in the fear of the Lord. And I have dawned on Israel this grace, this life, this provision. David's house indeed stands with God, but not because of David, not because of his righteousness. We know better. We've seen his life. David's not attractive. We've seen him, warts and all. Not a very attractive man after God's own heart. But David's righteousness was not his own. David's house stood with God because God stood with David. And he says so, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant. He's saying, my house stands with the Lord because the Lord has made with me an everlasting covenant and it is ordered in all things and it is secure. It is orderly. It is secure. It is everlasting. David's certain of his kingship, not because of David, not because he's a just king exercising perfectly the fear of the Lord. He's not celebrating the work of his own hands. His assurance rested in God, and his assurance rested in God's promises, the everlasting covenant. So he found hope in God alone. He says, for he will not cause to prosper all my help and all my desires. That's a wonderful covenant. He says, the covenant will cause me to prosper. He says, the covenant was my help, and the covenant gave me all my desires. That's a wonderful covenant. And it's everlasting, which means it won't be undone. It can't be undone by time or will. So for everlasting, God will be David's help. He will provide all that David needs. He will cause David to prosper, and he will deliver David from all his enemies. Verse 6, but worthless men... They're all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. The king brings light and rain, and the country is green and prosperous. But David says, there's weeds. There's weeds in the kingdom. There are men who hate the kingdom. And he says, you can't just pull them out. You can't take them by the hand, he says. Their roots are too deep. Their roots are too deep to pull these weeds. You're going to need forged instruments, he says, verse 7. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed 
with fire. The king will wage war and destroy completely all the weeds with fire. And this too is gospel. You see, the gospel is both blessings and curses because the kingdom is already and not yet. Already blessings. Already Christ has come. In the first advent, Christ's first advent established the kingdom of God. He is the word from heaven, powerful and everlasting, whose word worked the kingdom. His word worked the kingdom. His word is working the kingdom. So already Christ is the light of the world. Already he's the living water that has brought life to the valley of death. And Christ's church is now prosperous, established, green and prosperous. Already the kingdom of God is established, the church. And his perfect rule satisfied. His perfect rule has satisfied all of us subjects. Not our work, not the work of our hands, but his satisfaction. And so there's no more condemnation in the kingdom of God. There's no more condemnation in the church. And in the fear of the Lord, Christ has brought us peace. And that's why Christ is so attractive. He's not like leaders of the world. All the leaders of the world, all of them, and I don't care who you follow, they're all immoral. They're all corrupt and oppressive. They use the law to suppress. But Christ used the law to bless. There is no ruler like Christ who laid his life down even for his enemy. Who does that? Who gives their life for those who hate them but Christ? And by his death, we are free. Already we have life eternal promise and the everlasting covenant of grace. Yet weeds remain. There are weeds in the church. And today their roots of heresy and discord seek to dry up all that's beautiful in the valley. So Christ will return one day to burn it all up. That's the not yet. And so now... Jesus says the weeds and the wheat will remain and he will not return to pull up the weeds lest he take the wheat. He's patient and long-suffering, wanting the church to grow to the ends of the earth, drawing more to himself. So we wait from the word. We wait for the word from heaven whose judgment is severe. And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Remember that terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God, but his gospel is peace. And he offers it already today. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, it's as if you've never sinned nor been a sinner, but as if you've been perfectly obedient as Christ is obedient for you. And all you have to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. And if you put your hope and faith in Christ, you are beautiful. And your beauty will never fade. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.